Hi, I'm Dee Reddy and welcome to Inside Intercom. It's hard to find a hotter trend in Silicon Valley than the idea of turning your product into a platform. And it's not without good reason. Nearly all software products with dominant market share started as apps, but grew to the point where third-party developers began building valuable integrations on top of what these companies had already created. Turning your product into a platform that developers can build on is a great way to tap into new audiences and expand your market share. But that doesn't necessarily mean you should take the leap blindly simply because it's popular at the moment. Over the past year, we've had great conversations with some of the top minds in platform development. And these talks have had an enormous influence on the way we think about extending the Intercom platform and building out our app store. In today's episode, we're featuring the best parts from those chats. You'll hear from Slack's Director of Platform Marketing, CC Stolsmith, Box's Chief Product Officer and Chief Strategy Officer, G2 Patel, New Relic's General Manager, Mark Wietzel, former Head of Marketing at Mad Kudu, Liam Booger Azule, and Vice President of Facebook Workplace, Julian Cordonieu. To hear each of these conversations in full, just check out the episodes on our podcast. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, over to the archives. What is a platform anyway? With any hot topic in the startup world, it's helpful to start by establishing terms. In this case, C.C. Stallsmith likes Bill Gates' definition as the point when the value of the stuff built on top of your product surpasses the value of your product by itself. If you can create a scenario where others are building on top of your product and therefore evolving it in ways you may not have the resources to do yourself, your offering suddenly becomes even more valuable to your customers. Here, C.C. unpacks her thinking for Intercom's Group Product Marketing Manager, Jasmine Jaume. Obviously, Box and Slack, both strong platforms. Platform's kind of a hot topic, right? <laughs> Everyone wants to be a platform at the moment. What makes companies like Box and Slack real platforms versus just products that have kind of great extensibility? And why do you think it's important to their business strategy to actually become a platform? Yeah, yeah, this is one of my favorite topics. Um, I think everyone likes to call themselves a platform. And I think platform <laughs> is one of the most overused words it yeah. <laughs> almost loses its meaning. I mean, you've been working in platform too. So like at a certain point, it's like everyone's using this. Does it mean anything anymore? So I think it's important to figure out what the heck does platform mean and what is a platform and what is not. When I was in venture, you meet with you know at least 20 founders every week, talk about their products. If you weren't you know actively doing a single deal and you meet with these tiny companies and they'd be like, and we're the platform. It's like, no one knows even who you are. Like, how are you a platform yet? <laughs> uh, so that is something I care about a lot. I think it's tricky. Not everyone can be a platform. If the nature of platforms existing means that some products have to be built as extensions of the platform itself. I also have a thesis or theory, I wrote about it, that platforms beget platforms. So one of the good ways to identify what is a platform versus what isn't is to think about like what really is. So Windows, That was a massive platform, still is. iOS, Facebook, Salesforce, like those are true platforms. Bill Gates actually uh, defined a platform, and this is a pretty high bar. I don't think many people have met it, (laughs) as once the value of the stuff built on top of your platform in some surpasses the value of your product by itself, that's when it's a quote-unquote true platform. I think that's quite a high bar, but it's what 
I like to strive for. The litmus test, I think, is if you've created a marketplace. Like, are people actually pursuing to build on your product because there's value that you've created to the platform there? Or is it just a a nifty integration? For instance, like you build on iOS because you know you're going to get users through it. Same for the other big ones that I talked about. But there is this other area, and I don't have a term for these kinds of tools. I think the easy term you could use is like developer tools. But there's like the Twilio's and the Stripes of the world. Those are big, amazing companies. Are they platforms? Like Stripe definitely has a marketplace. But I also know that Stripe is just a really useful product that I want to plug into my product that I'm building to help transact money. Like Twilio, I need it for text messages. So those are developer tools for sure. Are they platforms? I'm not sure. And then how you know if you're not a platform, I think there's really just, is there any value in, in integrating with your product? Or do you need to be doing all the integrations so that your customers get value versus having partners and developers wanting to come and build with you? Mm-hmm. That's how I look at it a little bit. Yeah, that makes yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, should companies all be trying to become platforms even? Because it's obviously fashionable yeah. <laughs> at the moment to do that. Do you think it actually, there are times where it makes sense to actually pursue that and start trying to build that value and times where it just simply doesn't and you should just stay as a product? Yeah, I think there's, it's tricky because the answer should be yes. The reason why you'd want to pursue being a platform or having a platform is because it makes your value as a pro- as a company, as a product, that much greater. Mm-hmm. Like the upside of having this big two-sided marketplace and extending your product into tons of different products with an API is quite large. It probably <laughs> m- multiple, like increases your products or your company's multiple in terms of valuation quite a bit to really have a platform. It makes yeah. you more useful. Um, I have this thing I'll be putting out soon about the platform flywheel. And like one of the reasons why platform is so useful is because when people build more stuff on top of your product, then your product's more useful to your customers Mm. all of a sudden. And that just gives you more product market fit and helps you grow faster. So like, hands down, if there's the opportunity to be a platform, great. On the flip side, developer time and mindshare is precious. Like, it is not worth trying to go pursue building a developer community if there's not actually value there for them. And you can kind of fake it for a couple of years, I think. I think it's very doable to figure out how you can win some developer interest over by trading good things for their interests. But at the end of the day, they're going to see through whether or not you're adding real value to them. Like marketing can only go so far, basically. So, and getting paid to develop on something can only go so far. So uh, I do think a big part of figuring out whether this is not a strategy for your business is do I actually have something of value to give to developers? Because that to me is what matters. That's why when I saw the Slack opportunity, I was like, I just have to go. It's just too cool because there was such value being added to developers from early days and there was so much developer demand before Mm -hmm. we had a Actually, an actual platform for third-party developers to build on. That, that's where I was like, oh, this is going to be a true platform, and I'm really, really excited about it, instead of something that people think, oh, this will be a platform someday. But in reality, we're all just going to say it. We're going to go forward. It's not really going to end up that way, and, and we're all going to be fine. We'll move forward and move on. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's great to not be a platform too, but there's obviously a lot of, it's lucrative to be yes. able to develop one. Yeah, very enticing. <laughs> yeah, everyone wants to be the center of the wheel. Yeah. And the truth is, I think... In each generation and cycle of technology, you only get a couple major ones that have significant lasting impact on the industry. And that's why Mm. when I list off Windows, iOS, Facebook, it's like, yeah, those are some of the biggest names. 
but they shaped the industry because they they figured out how to build the platform that everyone built to. Hmm. And it's interesting with iOS. They like didn't even, Steve Jobs didn't even want to, but that turned out <laughs> to be a great thing. In the summer of 2015, Box co-founder Aaron Levy recruited G2 Patel to create an open platform where developers could build Box content management into their own products. Box platform, which now includes more than 175 partners, has exponentially grown the company's addressable market. But how and when did they decide it was time to move to a platform mentality? As G2 explains to Intercom's Adam Reisman, it was all about finding new ways to create value for users on top of what had already been built. When you're a product builder who's first beginning to open up your platform, as it was the case for you when you got into Box, how did the mindset of the team that you were working with have to change? What type of transition did you guys have to make to become a platform company? That's a really good question. So, you know, one of the things that when you're an apps company and you start thinking about building a product for a particular audience, what you tend to have is a tremendous amount of clarity on the use cases that you're going to serve. And you typically tend to curate a very, very thoughtfully, you know, built out experience for those use cases for that particular audience. And then you direct people to use your product in that way. With the platform, most of the innovation that ends up happening, we might have not even imagined at the time that we were building the platform. And so that same model of taking an apps business uh, and porting it over the platform, the biggest kind of cognitive dissonance that happens is you don't start out with, you know, a very predefined, prescribed set of use cases. You start out with a baseline infrastructure and framework that people build on top of. And that is the biggest mind shift that you have to make because majority of the innovations that we've seen happen with our customers that they've built, we had never imagined when we were building the platform. Obviously, you guys were pretty large at the time that you made this transition, but someone that's maybe a little bit smaller than you looking around the corner, how do they know that they're both a good fit and ready for a platform play? What boxes do they need to check or have in place to set them up for success? I think, firstly, as you are building a startup, the thing to think about is any category dominant leader that's really gone out and built a disproportionate value and market share compared to their other competitors has essentially not just built an apps business, they've also built a platform business. What I mean by a platform business is you've got data in your system that other developers are using to create additional value on top of what you've provided to them. Mm -hmm. And that creates a discontinuous leverage effect within the ecosystem, right? And you're, you're basically taking advantage of the entire ecosystem. Um, where you're no, no longer just bound by the innovation velocity that you yourself organically might be able to deliver to the market, but you're actually compounding the value that everyone else can go out and build on top of the data that you have. So over time, a lot of companies that want to go out and dominate certain categories or you know have a category leadership position will need to go out and think about building a platform. But the way that you do it is in multiple stages. So for example, if you just look at our box journey that we had, we started out as an app that did some pretty basic capabilities and how do I take a file and share it and put it in the cloud and share it with people both inside and outside my organization. And then from there, we actually built out some enterprise capabilities that customers wanted around governance and compliance and all of those. And very quickly over there, we found out that, hey, back in 2008, we said, let's make sure that we give people the ability to work with box content, regardless of the application that they're working in. So the first thing we did to become a platform company was back in 2008, where we said, let's open up our APIs to third parties to go out and integrate with us. Mm -hmm. 
And in fact, phase zero was we had built out a pretty robust set of APIs that all of our capabilities that we had built ourselves were built on top of APIs rather than being built directly with calls into our core engine. Right. And so we had abstracted with a set of APIs and RESTful services. We then opened up those APIs for developers to integrate with us. And then over time, what you started seeing was customers also wanted to, as they were deploying Box, do some scripting and make sure that they can do some customization because they wanted to use Box in a certain way or they wanted to go out and do broad-based deployment and user provisioning and they wanted to write a quick script as an admin. So our API started getting used for that. And then very quickly, customers came to the conclusion actually that, hey, I love what Box brings to the table, but there's a bunch of apps that I'm building, which I also want to have the same level of rich content capability embedded in with the same level of compliance and security. And I don't want to refigure that out every single time I build an app. Um, would you folks be able to white label the app or white label your, your, your product with a set of APIs and have the right identity model so people don't have friction, so on and so forth? But in this entire journey, what we ended up doing was started with something very basic, but we were true to the principle of we have to build a company that's API first. Yep. So you might be an apps company today, just make sure that you have the discipline of being an API first company because you never know when your business model will actually make a lot of sense to create a lot of leverage by building a platform and building a set of APIs that people can build on. And if you do plan on building a multi-billion dollar company, chances are that you're going to want to make sure that you deliver ways that the data that you have can be compounded in value by what other people do on top of your data. And so that requires, you know, having a platform mindset. To establish Slack as a true platform, CC Stolzmith's team took a three-fold approach by creating the Slack fund to invest in developers, creating a strategy and story, and driving adoption by making life as easy for developers as possible. Then there's the issue of measuring success, which is hardly straightforward. CC sees adoption as the top metric to look at, followed by overall developer activity and app quality. Here, CC gives Intercom's Group Product Marketing Manager, Jasmine Jaume, a few things to look for when judging a triumph or a failure. One of the first kind of things you mentioned, adoption, obviously, when you joined Slack, mm -hmm. what were the other things you did to kind of start getting the platform off the ground? Yeah, so I got to go through a really fun platform journey. So when I first joined, we actually didn't have APIs that worked for third-party developers very well. So we had to like essentially take the API and turn it inside out like it was a sweater. But <laughs> it's a technical sweater, so that took a while. So I joined, and then we just did this big event, figure out how to like set the uh, APIs up so that third parties could use them and like sort of got those out one by one. And then we created the marketplace, so that was like a place to have your app listed so that you're like, oh, that could be a valuable place to be found as a developer, and then a place to find apps as a customer. And then the third thing was we actually created the Slack fund, and that was just really with the focus of investing in this ecosystem that we thought would be really successful. And that's gone really well. We've made a lot of investments. We have someone full-time who actually does the job of making investments from the Slack fund, which shows a lot of commitment to that. A lot of companies have, quote-unquote, like, we have a fund. And no one manages it, and they do two investments to start, and then they never pay attention to it ever again. Mm. But we really have one, and we invest out of it, which is really cool. The second thing that I, when I first started, it was like, create a launch strategy, create the story of our platform, why we have it. Some of those pieces we did early on are still some of my favorite work I've done at Slack, outside of, like, hiring the team that I've hired, because I love them, and they're the best people ever. But creating that story was really fun. I actually got to put out this blog post right after the launch about 
that Bill Gates quote that I told you about. <laughs> yeah. It's like, if you all win, then we win. So we're here to help you win. And that was a, it was cool to see that resonate in the community. From there, it was driving adoption, like I mentioned, making life easier for developers. So figuring out how can we make our APIs more usable, create different things that would scaffold these APIs so that people can use them, you know, copy, paste, have them be done. And then on the product marketing side, what was fun is thinking about how do we product market APIs? How do we product market developer products? Because usually, and you do this a good bit too, usually you're thinking about how do I get a customer to adopt this and like click this button now more often. Mm -hmm. But it's really fun to product market something where it's like, here's all the stuff you could build with this. And so since I joined, we've been just opening up different parts of our UI, so different parts of our product to give developers access. So like on a message, when you hover over it in Slack, hopefully people have used Slack listening to this, we opened up, basically there's like a, a three dot button where there's more options. So you can take an action on a message, which means if I want to send a message to Jira, I could do that if I have the Jira app installed. Like there are all these different things that we've been exposing in our product to give developers more access to our customers and to make their products more useful for our shared customers. So it's been really fun just figuring out how do I product market that really simply. Like enterprise product marketing, you have to think about why, what does the CIO care about? Like what is the itch they need to scratch? And often it's about security and fear. And with developer product marketing, it's how do I sound the least like a marketer yeah. possible? <laughs> and I've never really seen myself as a marketer. So that's what's been fun in this role and working with the team that we've built to do this. We're kind of like marketers who love being marketers, but don't want to sound at all, quote unquote, marketing-y. So we really have, have worked to create a style uh, that we do, we use that's straightforward, to the point, but kind as well. Mm. It has that little bit of slack playfulness. And that's been really fun. And then the last thing, if I was going to bucket all the stuff we've done, is figuring out which big partners to go to market with and how. So we've had a lot of fortune, I guess, in terms of and this is like the BD team, not me, in terms of landing really big partnerships for Slack. But when you think about an ecosystem, the way I always look at this is it's not like this huge school of fish. And there are some fish that are really, really big. And then there are some fish who are really small and you're sort of a middle fish. And when you partner with one of the big ones, you need to figure out like, when I come up with a really big partner, what is that going to communicate to the market? Because mm. they have a very significant brand and they have an audience. And when you partner with that brand and that audience, it rubs off on you. Like, what are they trying to get from my brand when, when we do this partnership and from a marketing point of view? And this actually does impact your platform. Like the smaller fish or smaller partners will see the big partnerships that you're doing and react to them in different ways. For instance, if there's a partner that does the same thing as some of your smaller partners are your, are your you know, more up and coming partners. I don't mean to say smaller to sound derogatory at all. They're wonderful. They like make and break the platform. You need to figure out like, how do we not step on toes? How do we like, create this is the worst word, separate swim lanes, but we're using a fish analogy here, so <laughs> it works out great. Um, <laughs> and then how do I get what we want for the company from a marketing point of view out of those big partnerships, especially around the PR that comes out and like the blogs that you're going to write and those pieces? It's hard. It's nuanced. It's more like a comms job. Again, that's, I think, what makes this role so fun because there's so many different elements, and that one is a particularly you have to really like grab onto the brand pieces and be yeah. like, okay, this this company plays really well in these channels. We're going to go hang out in those channels with them. And that's different for us. Like, We yeah. need to watch out for these pieces because that will not reflect well. We've talked about, you know, your partner success is your success. Yeah. But how do you actually measure success? Because I know this is something we've struggled with at Intercom and other people I've worked on at platforms at different companies also find it difficult. Like, 
how do you actually measure the platform? So how do you think about that Slack? And are there specific metrics that you found helpful? Yes. I'll just start with the (laughs) anti-answer. Not tokens. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) So many companies put out like, we've had 1 million developer tokens like accessed or generated. It's like, that means nothing. That's a meaningless (laughs) metric. Um, I could go click generate token all day long and generate (laughs) 300. Yeah, I'm pretty passionate about figuring out success metrics. They're also hard. At Box, they were a lot easier in many ways because Box... As a product, you know, you store files, you share them, you comment on them, but it had less pieces of the puzzle, I guess. Slack is a more complex product in that there are so many things you can do with it. Mm. So um, I'm going to get to what the actual metrics are, but I'm going to tell stories first. Um, (laughs) So, for instance, there are a number of apps that just send information into Slack. They're called notification apps. For instance, there's a Twitter one that just sends you a tweet if you sign up to subscribe to someone's tweet Mm. and it sends them into Slack. It's a really basic integration. Is using that integration valuable to customers? Yes and no. So there are certain channels that were set up a long time ago and someone set up a notification from some product into that channel and that channel is just a dead channel that gets random pings all day. (laughs) And there are other channels where you set up an integration with like, you know, Trello, uh, any any product that could give you an update on a project status or, you know, the Twitter updates from something. And it's actually super valuable. Watching your competitors' tweets, that's actually valuable. Mm. You don't always click the tweets or click the notifications coming in. You just read them. So it's tricky to know how to measure success exactly. All of that said, um, as I've been banging this drum, I'll just keep banging it. I think adoption of the apps that are built on your platform is the top measure for success. It's also the hardest one to get to. Like that's completing the platform flywheel and it's difficult. Like it's usually also something that happens after you've really started to spin the whole thing up because you have to win the developers and partners over. You have to get them to build with you or, or build the integration for them. You have to then do the marketing to launch those things. And then you have to watch and try to get that adoption to happen. So it's a slower metric to track. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode two of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our chief product officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these like before-after moments, you never go back. AI has clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. And the earlier that people lean into this completely new mindset, the earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type of customer experience, It's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them. It's just a matter of time. That's all to come on episode two of Offscript. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel right now and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. New Relic believes that every developer is created equal. That's why they're striving to be a more open company that's contributing to open source, consuming open source and engaging in open standards. To get there, they've developed a set of ethics to guide their culture. 
Here, Mark Wietzel runs Intercom's head of platform partnerships, Jeff Gardner, through those values. At New Relic, we tried to establish a set of guiding principles for us because so many people, so many teams interact with, with our customers. You know, the first one we laid out was this notion of all developers being equal. All developers are created equal. And that's the idea that you create a platform and whether you're in the New Relic, uh, you know, whether you're a New Relic employee or a customer or a developer at a, at a partner, you're using the same tools, you're using the same APIs, you're, you're using the same things. There's this notion of equality across the platform. So you guys advocate really for having your internal teams, you know, dogfooding, using those APIs to build everything that they build for, you know, yeah. the own, you know your own internal product. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's our goal, right? right. And this is a, a guiding principle. And, you know, let's, let's be honest with each other, right? Sometimes these, these are tough to adhere to. Of course. And software making isn't always pretty. But if you establish that principle, it starts to establish a discipline of separating the platform out, which gives you the ability to adhere to API contracts, which gives you the ability to evolve and move faster. Mm-hmm. So the more that you are that self-consuming dog fooding or drinking your own champagne or whichever yeah. you know euphemism we want to use, the stronger your platform ends up becoming. Yeah. You know, another another guiding principle for us is we're striving to be more open. We're striving to become a, a more open company that's that's contributing to open source and consuming open source, engaging in open standards. You know, we we joined CNCF a number of years ago, I guess, I guess about a year or so ago, we mm-hmm. joined CNCF. So we did that. So we had a, a way to engage the community at a, at, a, at a different level and bring some of our thought leadership and learn from other companies that are there. So we're working to be more open and favor working openly where we can. That doesn't mean we're going to open source everything, obviously, uh, but it does mean we're going to try to engage more openly. And the last one, and this is this is one that's really, I think, probably uh, for me, the, the most important one, which is, you know, working with New Relic must be joyful. You have to have that sense of accomplishment. You know, think about that first 20 minutes when you encounter and you're like, oh, I want to go try something. And, and all of a sudden it works. You're like, wow, I did that. That was awesome. What's next? And you get that right. excitement. Yeah. And you feel like you're being productive and driving value to the business in a new and unique way. That's a joyful experience. Like that's that's the energy and excitement I want New Relic's developer program to instill in every person that touches our API. Absolutely. Yeah, we recently had Cece from Slack on the podcast and she mentioned something similar in the, in the sense of, um, you know, you're you're trying to make the process simple and easy and, you know, uh, effortless for the consumers of the platform and the users of the platform. But you also are there to sort of instill some of your brand and instill some of that, uh, some of your personality, I guess, into the relationship as well. And it sounds like that's exactly what some of these principles are driving towards. It's exactly what those principles are driving towards. This is, I mean, you guys obviously have a, a strong set of principles here to start with, but how hard was it to get to those? Was that, you know, was there a ton of internal debate around that? Was it an exec level thing? Was it a ground level, you know, in the team amongst themselves kind of deciding that? Or how did that play out internally? You know, it's really interesting. Um, there there was really no debate about that last one, right? You know, sure. that, you know everybody understands that, that, 
you know, we're here because we all have this love affair with software. We're all passionate developers, right? So making that a a joyful, exciting experience, like that was a no-brainer. And it's almost like stating the obvious. You know, some of the others, like we talked about, like building software is hard. You know, deciding, for example, on the do we open up an API that we use proprietarily because it, you know, it favors? Uh, those are those are hard decisions, right? Building Very hard software, calls. yeah, building software isn't is isn't always the prettiest thing, uh, if you will. And so there's there was a lot of debate about that. What does it mean to have you know everybody created equal, and and what does it mean to consume our own platform? But um, we had a lot of discussions about that, really at, at multiple levels of the organization. Okay. And in the end, you guys felt like you kind of came to a, a common understanding of what, you know, created equal means and what openness looks like and that sort of thing? We, we did. And this is this is part of our journey. This is mm -hmm. part of our journey as, as maturing as a developer platform, as as becoming an engage, you know, and engaging our community more. These are guiding principles and we strive for those principles. We're not always perfect, but this is what we're striving for. Businesses exist to make money, but you can kiss success goodbye if you're putting yourself before your customers and partners. That's why it's essential to determine whether your product is ready to be a platform at all. As Liam Booger Azule tells it to Intercom's Director of Content, John Collins, some products should think about integrating with existing platforms and growing their reach that way instead. What is your advice for other product teams or, or you know, uh, startups that are trying to build integrations and tr trying to get this off the ground really, really quick. Like, wh how do you choose? You touched a little bit about, like, when should you think about integration and, you know, who to choose to integrate with early on? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I think you have to think about a lot of things. Um, you know, over the past nine months or so, we've been building a lot of relationships with different platforms that we felt like had complementary aspects and we felt like we could both benefit from working together. And a lot of the things we learned is, you have to think about a few different things. One, you have to think about what are the use cases that you're trying to solve for? And, and less, is, less is more in this case. Like, are, where are you trying to add value? And what are the tools people are using to do that today? And, and are you augmenting or are you replacing that tool? Mm. And for the most part, you should be augmenting because the foundations that work are, are foundations for a reason. Mm. And, and instead of ripping up the foundation, it's better to build something on top of it, build a yep. better roof, a better, a better floor, things like that. And the other side of that is you think about who is using that use case. Um, for us, we're very mid-market and enterprise. We're, we're not a self-serve go-to-market company. And so for products that are solely self-serve, and solely SMB or VSMB, it can make less sense for us to go after it, yep. right? And, and you have to weigh the, the pros and the cons of, of who is actually going after it and who that target audience is. And, and I think the last thing is just thinking about what is the vision that you are driving for? And what are the, in, in your vision of the future where your product is ubiquitous, what are the roles of other platforms? And, and how can you demonstrate and create evidence of that vision through an integration? You know, for, for us in the role of the future of customer intelligence, Intercom plus Mad Kudu makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. We see very much how the customer engagement and the customer data is going to live somewhere and customer intelligence is going to augment that value. We see how we can be pulling data from outside of Intercom because we know people use multiple tools 
across the MarTech sales tech stack and, and the whole go-to-market stack. And we see how we can take that customer data from your Redshift database, from your segment, from wherever, and we can bring that right back into where your marketing, your sales, and your customer success team is working. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to bring it in the form of piping in the raw data and the raw fields. We can just pipe it in with thumbs up, thumbs down. Yeah. Or you, very good, very bad. You got what you need to, make, to do the auction. Exactly. And I think when people are building integrations and, and thinking about the ecosystems they want to play with, you really want to think about how does this communicate the vision that we're, that we're trying to bring to the world? Being a platform does you no good if the user experience is clunky and convoluted. As Julian Cordonier explains to Intercom's Director of Content, John Collins, that's why the Facebook Workplace team wants to be the Switzerland of IT departments, the plug-and-play destination that connects flawlessly to the other apps you're already using and helps you discover new ways of working efficiently. I think a big part of obviously Facebook's strength as a company is its platform and third-party developers can obviously come in and create their own applications and services that access Facebook data. You worked on the platform team in the early days. I mean, that, that was the vision in the early days? And, uh, it was the vision at Facebook, but the vision for Workplace is actually very, very different. We do have integrations with uh, some apps. We have a marketplace today with, I think, 50 applications. But the truth is that we want Workplace to be the app that will be connected to every other app you're using. And usually these apps are Office 365, G Suite, Box, Okta, Netscope, mm -hmm. Salesforce, Marketo. So we want to be the app that will be like the, the Switzerland of the IT department, making every other app work together, work better together, in a way that is integrated, of course, that is mobile-friendly, that is user-friendly, where Workplace becomes the place of discovery and distribution of what's happening in other applications. For example, at Facebook, we use, uh, we use Quip. It's a company created by our former CTO that Salesforce acquired. When I wake up in the morning, I don't open quip.com or the quip app on my, on my, on my, on my phone, right? Mm -hmm. But I open Workplace and in a group with my team, someone will have shared a document in quip. And so we'll have a nice preview of that document in Workplace. I will click on it, it will take me to quip. And I think that's the type of partnership and user experiences that we want to give to our, to our employees and to our, to our clients. It has to be so easy, so simple, so integrated that you don't even feel that you're going from one app to another. And I think the newsfeed on Workplace does a very good job at driving the discovery um, and the distribution of other applications. And you know, my goal is to make sure that if I look at the top 100 SaaS apps or the top 50 SaaS apps, all of them are somehow natively integrated with Workplace. So it's, it's not an open marketplace for everybody. It's a closed, highly created marketplace where you will find the most respected SaaS companies and the most used SaaS applications uh, in the world. So very different from, uh, from, from what we did with Facebook. What's similar, though, is the ambition to build an ecosystem, to build a workplace economy, a workplace economy of service integrators, of resellers, uh, of ISVs, of independent developers building apps for their colleagues, their employees, or for workplace customers. Mm -hmm. But that, that's something we are heavily investing um, in, and we have, we have a big partnership team now, working you know, from PwC to companies like Revevol in France, Enablo in Australia, companies like Paychex in the US, uh, Slalom Consulting in the US. We don't want to be into that journey alone, and we, we want to build an ecosystem and to foster and to stimulate a very vibrant workplace economy and a workplace ecosystem. That's very similar to, uh, to Facebook, you know, core principles. In this episode, we've gathered some of the best minds in the business and explored their ideas on all things platform. From how to build one and measure its success, 
to how to support your developers, to how to know if going the platform route is even right for your company in the first place. If you're interested in learning more about the Intercom platform, head to developers.intercom.com where you can find out more information about our app ecosystem and even play around with a visual builder that allows you to easily see what your own app could look like in the Intercom Messenger or Inbox. Happy platforming. Thanks for listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more interviews, go to intercom.com slash blog or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. This is Inside Intercom.